Hello, and welcome to In Her Room, women writers on life, craft, and changing the world. I'm your host, Sarah Blackthorne. In Her Room is supported by listeners like you. Contribute to keeping the show ad-free at patreon.com slash inherroom, or visit our website to make a one-time donation. Your support keeps women's voices on the air. This week's guest on In Her Room is Laura Bogart. With bravery and a sharp wit, Laura Bogart is no stranger to writing that challenges and pushes preconceptions. Using pop culture as a mirror for sometimes difficult topics, she has been featured in Salon, Spin Magazine, Dame, The Rumpus, and more. Laura, it is so great to have you on the show today. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you for having me. It's an honor. I'm really excited to talk with you. You have so many different kinds of writing that you do and so many different pieces that you've put out in the world that I'm just super thrilled to be introducing you to the In Her Room audience. I want to start out, though, by asking you, what is writing to you? Writing to me is um, many, many things. It's expression. It's empowerment. It is saying the things that I've wanted to say since I was very young. And it is finding and giving a voice to my younger self who did not have uh, a voice or methods of empowerment. Um, Writing to me is also observation. It's about seeing the things in the world, like the world's beauties, its horrors, um, observing people, observing everything about them, their motivations, um, their flaws, their beauties, and putting that on the page and kind of you know, turning it into uh, this this piece of art, this this thought that is expressed through language and image. Mm. I love the way that you talk about both observing and giving voice. I think those two go hand in hand really well because we can observe things and yeah. also give them a voice, but we also have to have our own voice and opinion and self-observation. Yeah. You mentioned specifically giving voice to your younger self who didn't have a voice. And I want to just dive right into that. Um, You write openly about being a survivor of childhood abuse and with a candor that I think many people might be surprised by. You write pretty frankly about your childhood and about the things that you experienced. But there is also this way that... It is done with a, a sense of remove that doesn't dehumanize or, or depersonalize the experience, but allows us to really feel what you're expressing and not be destroyed by it. Yeah. And, and I think that's really, um, it's something that a lot of people who write about difficult topics like childhood abuse or sexual assault or uh, some of the other topics that you've written about um I think people really aim for that, don't always get there. And I'm curious how you decided to write about these things and how you found that voice and that way of expressing them. So for me, it was a matter of finding the distance. Um, You know, I I don't use writing as therapy. Um, I've been through therapy for a number of years and some of the therapy I had involved journaling or writing 
Um, but really kind of using some of the observations that I had made about myself and my situations in various therapeutic environments was helpful. I think also when I was younger, I think about some of the writers that really inspired me, like writers like Mary Gateskill, Dorothy Allison, and like Joyce Carol Oates. And these were women who were putting these types of issues out there very, very explicitly, very, very graphically. And I knew what that had done for me. And then when I was a little bit older, I was reading Cheryl Strayed and the things that she was putting on paper. And I remember really thinking, well, if they can do it, then I can do it. And, you know, I, I really allowed those women to teach me. I, I read and reread constantly and I would like analyze and take notes about the things that they were doing that was very, very effective. And one of the things that they would do, you know, they would really put you in the moment of the things that either they themselves or their characters were experiencing. And then just at the moment when things would feel like it, it would be becoming excruciating, they would pull out and they would either kind of offer something like beautifully imagistic in the case of like a gate skill or, or strain, or they would kind of pair back and do some like kind of broader analysis of situating their particular situation in something that bigger that was either happening in the culture or something more universal. Um, Mary Gateskill has this essay and I think it's a, a classic essay where she's talking about date rape and she's talking about sexual assaults that she's experienced herself. And it's a very difficult read. It's a very emotional read, but the way that she situates, uh, her own circumstances in this kind of broader cultural conversation really struck me as being one way to do this uh, in an effective way. Or Cheryl Strayed writing about her own family background, um, the death of her mother, her drug abuse, mm -hmm. and the way that she would find these kind of connected tissues. And really, you know, she kind of puts them within the hero's journey um, archetype. Uh, you know, it, it, it made it be their own experiences, but more than their own experiences. And that also uh, was something that I aspired to. Um, I would also say, like, as an influence, you know, I, I as a teenager, I was fortunate to find, you know, a singer songwriter like Tori Amos, who could actually be kind of wry and funny about her own rape. Um, and that was another way of of me looking at this and going, okay, there are multiple ways to write about these things, these very, very sad things. And they don't always have to be graphic or explicit. They can be more contemplative and they can take on all aspects, all kinds of emotions can be applied to the writing of them. Hmm. I love that. You know, I, I love that you mentioned Tori Amos because her songs and her talking about rape and date rape and those situations are oftentimes a way for young women and uh, teenage girls even to look at their own situations and maybe put a name to something that they've experienced and didn't really understand or couldn't really acknowledge what it was. Yeah. And so for writers like you and I who are of the next generation of Cheryl Strades and Mary Gateskills and Dorothy Allison's being able to write about our own experiences and our own situations in that same way where we can provide insight and contemplation without 
horror and yeah. sort of that um, shock and awe factor is really important. Yeah, I, I think so too. And I mean, I think that it's, for me, it's a matter of having the distance and the perspective and to be thinking about um, how to mind my own experiences in ways that feel artful and reflective. Um, I think that there's a there's a real palpable difference between writing that feels like very like it's from someone's diary and writing that has been very crafted for an audience. And certainly when I was in grad school, when I was sort of figuring out how I was going to go about doing this, um, I, I certainly wrote a number of things that felt like they had been cribbed from a diary. But I needed to write those things in order to get to the place where I am now, where I can, you know, really reflect on how am I going to fit my circumstances into a broader context, whether that's a literary essay or something that relates more to popular culture. Um, So I think that that's, that's important to note that it really is about distance and perspective and it really is about an art and a craft to it. And sometimes when I'm writing, you know, there are times certainly when I'm writing, when I'm sort of feeling the brunt of things that, you know, the, the emotions that I've experienced, but, you know, most of the time I'm really thinking about how can I get that line to the next level, you know, of, of of lyricism or how can I fit these pieces together in ways that feel very artful and contained. And you mentioned, both the sort of literary aspect of writing as well as writing with a little bit more of a connection to pop culture. And I want to, I want to touch on that because you do write both kinds of essays. You write both very literary, almost uh, textbook creative nonfiction essays. And then you also write essays that are published in places like Spin and Salon that have a little bit more of a pop culture influence and connection. And I'm curious how you got to that point of writing both kinds of essays and what that work has been like for you. So, I mean, I I, I love media. I love movies. I love TV, I love music, and I think um, the the movies that I've seen and the shows that I've watched and the music I listen to really inf- have always influenced me as as a writer. Um, and I really have fa- seen a lot of myself and a lot of my own circumstances in the media that I consume, and I have always related to it very, on a very profound emotional level. And, you know, sort of the genesis of this is I did an essay for The Nervous Breakdown where I talked about The Hunger Games and seeing a lot of my own struggle with post-traumatic stress disorder with the main character of Katniss Everdeen. And that essay came to the attention of the Salon personal essays editor, Sarah Heppola, and Sarah Heppola um really took me under her wing and mentored me and really kind of showed me how to write a salon essay or an essay that would have more of a kind of broader cultural appeal. So I was very fortunate to really work with a master editor 
um, with her. And, you know, I, I enjoy doing both forms of essays. Now, um, with an essay that has more of a pop cultural beat or appeal, you know that there are going to be certain beats that you have to hit every time. Um, you have to assume that the reader that you are um, engaging with may not have, have seen every episode of a show that you're talking about or a movie that you're talking about. So you have to kind of walk a fine line between explaining the media but not summarizing it. Because I think really like facile pop culture analysis just ends up being like, a description of something like the really good cultural pop cultural writing um, dives deep into a piece of a film or a show or something like that. Um, Sonia Soraya at Salon does really good work in that instance. And she did like this really landmark piece um, when there was a, a lot of the conversation about like sexual assaults in uh, television. And she did this piece really tracing the origin of the word rape and talking about it in relationship with shows like Game of Thrones and things like that. So I think if you use culture wisely, you can use it to talk about broader things. And so I know whenever I'm responding very deeply to a show or a movie, I'm trying to think about, well, okay, what is it that I'm responding to and how can I blow that up um, so that it might feel more universal so um i don't know if you've ever seen a show called the americans that airs on fx um it's a show about these two soviet spies and they are living in america under assumed identities and it's uh they're pretending to be a married couple and they're both very like formidable spies they're both these two total badasses um but he's a little bit more like contemplative and he kind of likes the softness and the comforts of the West. And she is a total ride or die warrior woman. And I found myself being really emotionally invested in their relationship, like from the very first season onward. And I was sort of like, well, what, what is it about that that I'm so drawn to? And then I thought, well, oh, because here's this really tough, uncompromising woman and she's found this man who can kind of match her but at the same time can balance her and I was like oh okay well that's a piece that I want to write about now and I want to celebrate this show for doing that um and I and I wrote that piece for Dame and it was very well received um actually the the editor of Dame it showed it to um or tweeted it to I think the um, guy who's the showrunner for that show, and he liked it. So that was incredibly vindicating for me. That's awesome. And and you bring up so many important points about what it means to write about culture and how we can use culture to talk about these bigger issues because we are constantly creating culture. And I think we would be remiss if we didn't take the opportunity to use popular culture as a way to reflect on on things, both on the way things are changing and maybe sometimes on the way things haven't changed. Yes. I'm thinking about an, a piece that you had published recently in Spin uh. about some comments that Chrissy Hind made um, about her own rape and, and how they came across as yeah. victim blaming and how they really, um, there was a lot of struggle from someone who is such a 
punk rock goddess yeah for so many people and yet to hear these these statements and and to feel like the experiences of so many women are being diminished um i think that's a really important thing for us to use and reflect on because when when someone so well known makes these comments yeah. it really illustrates a whole ideology in society that we might forget exists or might not expect to come from that source. Yes. Yeah, I mean that's that's absolutely the case and and, and you know, I when I read her comments and there was a lot of backlash to them as there should be, absolutely, but I looked at somebody like Chrissy Hine as being very much not only a victim of the assault but a victim of rape culture where she would have this need to minimize her own experiences. Mm -hmm. Because I recognize having done that myself. And I talk about that because there are a lot of people who talk about, I guess, corporal punishment or whatever. And, you know, however severe their own circumstances may have been, they really minimize it. And they go, well, you know, I got spanked as a kid or I got the belt as a kid. And, you know, look where I am now. You know, my, you know, my father whooped my ass on the podcast, you know, whooped my ass. And, you know, it made me the person I am today. And, you know, and I hear that, I hear a lot of denial um, because it's not a fun thing to be a survivor of a bad thing. It's not a fun thing to realize that all of your power has been taken from you by this person and it's not anything that you did. It was just for whatever reason, on their whim you are violated and it's a hard thing to accept that there is no kind of perfect alchemy to prevent these things from happening and I think a lot of when we're talking about abuse and when people are trying to justify it it really is about finding ways in which okay well I'm not a victim and I don't have to be a victim again because of x y and z that's deep it strikes me as a very deeply sad heartbreaking thing and so, you know, when I hear Chrissy Hine make these comments, like, absolutely, we need to condemn her for that. But we also need to understand where it's coming from, because she's certainly not the only one who's saying it. And it's just as damaging to hear, say, the woman in the cubicle next to you say these sorts of things and enforce these these kind of behaviors It is as it is to hear this, like, grand rock star say it. Yes, exactly. And that's such an important point, because... When someone says something and it gets such public attention, that's one thing. But we have to remember that these are the things that are being said and believed all around us. Absolutely. Whether people acknowledge it or not. And I think that's one of the things that I loved about that particular piece that you wrote and published is that it reminds us we don't know where these thoughts and these opinions are going to come from. Yeah. And how do we look at that and how do we experience that and encounter that in the world? I know for me, that piece was a great moment of reflection on like my own experience, both how do I manage myself when I'm confronted with these comments that feel like they completely diminish and destroy my own experiences. And at the same time, how do I tackle that once I hear them? What is my response to this person? What do I choose to say? How do I choose to handle the situation? So I think it brings up a lot of really important conversations. 
Yeah, I think so too. And, and you know, I guess the thing is, I, I want to say is we all kind of fall short of the glory because I have definitely heard those remarks come from people and I've not said anything. And I know that it would be powerful for me to say, well, actually, I'm a survivor and I don't appreciate that remark. But it's a coworker, it's somebody that you know casually, and it's like, I don't want this person to know this about me right now. I don't feel safe. And so sometimes you have to prioritize your own safety. And then sometimes like I'm just pissed off and I will say something like very cutting and very blunt um, and it will shut that person down. Um, but I think, you know, the, I guess what I was really trying to talk about with the Chrissy Hine piece is that, uh, you know, yeah, she deserves criticism. Absolutely. And those remarks need to be challenged and they need to be challenged constantly and consistently and we need to eradicate this culture that we have that um excuses and um condones abuse and rape in all forms but you know we also have to have empathy for people who are survivors in ways that are not what we always think of as being the quote-unquote good survivor or the good victim mm, yes and that is um, I think I think that last part is what draws me so much to that essay is talking about that and and finding ways to have that empathy and to really be clear that there isn't just one way to survive something. Yeah. I'd love it if you might read some of your writing for us. Okay, so um, I'm going to read a piece that I did for the uh, Sunday Brumpus, and I wrote this piece for uh, Gina Frangelo, who is a wonderful, wonderful editor, and she was at the Rumpus at the time. Um, and this piece, actually, talking about distance, it, it was about a person that I was involved with for a couple of months, like sort of long distance, and... Uh, it ended pretty <laughs> catastrophically. Um, and I, I actually had to wait a year before I wrote anything about it because I was so angry. Um, and so, again, going back to that idea of, like, distance brings perspective. Um, so uh, about a year after that ended, I sat down and, and started to write. So I built it around uh, the image of, of hibernation. I was really interested in kind of animal life at the time and come up with this kind of cool concept of uh, hibernation and evastation. Um, and so I built the essay around that. And uh, the essay is called Dormancy, and it ran on the rumpus last year. As a small girl, I study hibernation, a concept that terrifies and titillates me, the clockwork of metabolism grinding to a halt. Small spaces have always been my undoing, the pinion of my father's arms, my closet hideaway. And yet, the warmth of a burrow has always appealed to me, a clean, hollow space that could be mine alone. When I'm older, a friend gifts me with the word evastation, which he calls the opposite of hibernation. It mimics the same states of being, but it occurs in the hot, arid months. Tortoises and their hard-shelled brethren slip away at a time when other forms of life teem into being. They do this to avoid being stripped and leathered by the heat. They do this, by and large, above ground. 
the body becomes that clean, hollow space. I go back to these concepts, which Wikipedia has so helpfully bundled under the heading of animal dormancy, at the end of an infatuation, an exchange of confidences and cherished songs, stories and photos, fears and ambitions, that was too brief to amount to a capital R relationship, let alone a breakup. There was nothing to box up and give back, but those months have a depth and resonance that belie their brevity. My heart hiccups every time his name appears in my inbox. His eyes reveal something, everything his half-smile tries to hide. It leaves me punch-drunk, yet somehow sharper, more alert. He's the first man to spark my interest, let alone desire, in quite some time. Enough time that I type the number of years out and delete it, ashamed. I've been underground, too far down and too deep into my torpor to be aware of how densely the earth is packed around me. And these few months, my cells yawn open and my core slowly warms. But the natural process, the gradual emergence, is disrupted. He tells me, as a prelude to a kiss, that he's not looking to get attached and there's nothing emotional on his end. He's just looking for some fun and he's sorry if that wasn't clear. He sits so close to me on my tiny couch that our knees touch. The heat of his body strikes a spark in mine. I am jarred suddenly, cruelly, into being. I become aware of how tight my burrow is how it can smother and crush me. When I am too young to understand what drunk really means, my father gives me two of his teeth in a dice-sized box. The cavities are black pits in the center of teeth already yellowed with liquor and tobacco. My mother chides him for giving me something so bizarre and disgusting, tells me to throw them away. But they are electric, incandescent with taboo. If he'd cared for them properly, they'd still be hidden at the back of his mouth. I keep them hidden in my dresser drawer. I take them out and draw them. I shake them in their clear box just to hear them rattle. They are the first gift my father has given me that isn't an obligation. A birthday book or paint set for Christmas that my mother buys anyway. These teeth sustain me when he freezes me out for a C- on a multiplication quiz. He can go so long without speaking to me that I find myself grateful to get hit because his backhand is at least acknowledgement, touch, but I still have a part of him, an animal, elemental part of him, a part that has kept him fed and caused him pain. When I tell my therapist about the end of the infatuation, she gently directs me away from fruitless lamentation over last time and the effort emerging from a shell. She asks me how I define intimacy, for better, for worse. I don't have words for her, only my father's molars. The gift of something porous and difficult made tangible, physical, two black holes I could hold in my hand. My friends tell me that even though Mr. Three-Month Chump didn't work out long-term, he served his purpose. I'm aware now. I don't have to live in winter. My cinnamulant blood churns, my heart blooms. They meet me at my favorite coffee shop and snap pictures from my dating profile, sitting me with ease and with jokes about the writer and her natural habitat. They help me craft an about me that strikes the tone between endearingly awkward and flat-out anxious. 
They say I'm a catch. I just need to start looking for a partner. They assure me with the gentle insistence of a physical therapist guiding a wounded patient down the parallel bars that dating can be fun. I need to apply some time, some focus. I don't really date in high school or college. I watch other girls and their boyfriends lean against lockers and imagine the heft of a mouth over mine. Couples take over the quad on the first day of spring, spooning on beach blankets. As I weave through them, I wonder what it feels like to be precious to someone. I have always known love as the one-two combo of kiss and fist. When I am a child, a teenager, a grown woman, I dream of being buried under a house. The foundation bears down on me like a stone press exacting a confession from a witch. I bloody my fingers against the floorboards. The floorboards. I thrash in the tangle of muck and root. I wake with the bittersweet blood taste of damp earth in my mouth. I am not a late bloomer. I am a broken bone, knitting slowly, knitting together in the dark beneath skin. My first relationships are collections of moments to burnish and put on the shelf. Collections of memories to pull down and shatter like the dishware thrown in the fight. There's an ex-army ranger who smooths out the tiniest, tightest knots in my neck with the side of his thumb. There's the co-worker who swoops in for a first kiss after he's fed me a bite of his waffle with whipped cream. A taste of sweet after a taste of sweet. There is the man who double-dog dares me to slow dance with him in the DuPont fountain. As we slop and slosh hand in hand, I am everything I should have been as a child. Fearless, exuberant, a flash of star glimpsed from a trench. These affairs end for all of the everyday reasons. He's not as divorced as he says he is. He's better suited for his best friend, a girl-next-door type who doesn't flinch from a sudden touch. He doesn't love booze more than he loves me. He just needs it more. Then there are the men whose last names I never know, a tumble of tongues and knees. I feign down to fuck, which one bad date too many turns into, I don't give a fuck. And I don't give a fuck turns into comfortably numb. I recede into my work, my friendships, Sunday mornings in the dog park. Animals exert energy to survive. But energy isn't just the communion of muscles in running from a predator or chasing prey. It is breath in, breath out. It is thought. It is digestion. It is clear and effortless as a river's flow, but only when there is rainfall to feed it, a tributary to rush it along. Animals hibernate or estivate when the food they need to generate this energy is lost to the blitz of winter or the merciless sun. I listen to Lana Del Rey sing about a man who fits her better than a favorite sweater, and I fear that the riverbed is parched. I scan profiles of smiling men with punny screen names meant to obscure their fears, their shy hopefulness. We're all in our 30s, and there is a tender bafflement in our exchanges about what we're looking for. A sense that some ship has left us. We're just young enough to believe that the future laid out in so many Facebook feeds. The house, the wedding, the baby with her father's eyes. The chance to turn family into something more than a punchline, a rueful sigh, can still be ours. 
but we're just old enough to know that risk and hope are four-letter words. I answer strangers' questions about my ideal weekend. I email them back and forth about the books that have moved them. I eye my inbox, and I dream. Anonymous men emerge from a gray shuffle to drop their teeth in my open palms, and I tuck them in my dresser drawer with all the others. A dear friend tells me that no act of love is ever wasted. Nothing undoes the nights we dance in fountains and the mornings we wake with our faces cradled in our lovers' hands. Not even the knowledge that it all ends. There is no denying a heat that is as vast as a cavern, a cold front like thunder, deep and boundless. Stay above ground. Stand in the sun. Hibernation is not sleep. It is more like a living death. For three months, summer months that veered into a balmy fall, I emerge into the world. And then the man on the couch tells me there's no emotion, no attachment. He doesn't want to lead me on. He just wants to have fun. Something in my chest cracks open and steams. I think of everything I've let escaped in the past three months. The stories he's asked for. The day my father lost his faith in God and the day I found the nerve to leave his house. The night I showed Mary Gateskill how to use an iPod, but chickened out on telling her how I copied her sentences in my moleskine as if they were incantations. I think of everything I've taken in from him. Tales of travel, a peripatetic search from home, a quicksilver acuity on current affairs and ancient history. He's talked of lingering grief and fresh ache with a wry detachment that feels both swaddled and exposed like a dark tooth ticking in its swollen socket. I look into eyes I have likened to crushed diamonds and I tell him I want more. I want things that are profound in their banality to spend my days unconsciously collecting stories to share over dinner, to learn how to touch him when he's afraid, happy or afraid, to sit outside on a spring day, the warmth of his hands softer and stronger than the morning sun. Our bodies will say hello and goodbye in one night, and then he'll be gone. But when he's here, he is fully present, tender and nimble. My body becomes a tuning fork, struck once and left to quiver. I open my eyes once, watch him lick his fingers before he reaches down to touch me. The bluntness of spit on skin seems fitting, a reminder that no matter what I want in the end, I am, in this moment, a collection of nerves. I am an unfathomable blaze dancing on the thinnest wick. And in this moment, without language, without thought, I will not fear that heat. Mm. I'm curious the best advice you've ever received. Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think that some of the best advice that I have ever received is to trust myself, trust my intuitions, and um, not to be afraid of the things that I, I write about, and to always know that you know, there is a revision process. I don't have to get something right on the first chance. 
Um, and you know, the, 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 those are, those are some of the kind of great pieces of advice I got when I was like very early into my career that have kind of stuck with me. Um, and I think the advice that I get now that's really helpful is, um, to remember that, you know, it's about the quality of the work, not always the quantity of the work. Um, because I think sometimes there's this incredible pressure and this like internet age of writing to just be putting out, putting out, putting out, putting out work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm guilty of it too. And I'm always kind of kicking myself or not putting out as much. And I think it's very helpful when people remind me like, look, you don't have to weigh in on everything that happens, you know, focus on the work that you're doing now. And, you know, if you don't have something out every month, that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. You're okay. You're not the work. It's important, but it isn't you. Yeah, I think that's, I, that reminds me, it reminds me of this, like the importance of, um, like discerning ourselves as writers from the writing that we create. Yes. I am reminded of conversations I have with writers when I have to remind them, like, particularly if there's a rejection letter or something doesn't get accepted, like you're, you're not the writing. They're not saying that you're not worth it or you're being rejected, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think that's exactly it. We really, um, you know, I mean, if you care about our work, you know, to some degree, we can't help but personalize those things. Mm -hmm. Um, But you're right. It's important to remember that, this is the ebb and flow of things. And I have um, a novel that's going to go out to agents soon. Um, I'm, I've finished a first draft, you know, it's, it's being edited and um, I'm going to send it out. And the thing that I'm really having to remind myself over and over again is that this book is not you. It's a piece of you, mm-hmm. but it's also a piece of art. And like any other piece of art, um, people are going to have opinions about it. And it's not a reflection of, of, of your merit as a human being. Right. And I think the other thing that reminds me of is um, someone really just powerful and so important to me said that, you know, the, the phrase that they used was, You're, you were not your scars. Yeah. Oh, I like that. And that, you know, w- we all survive what we survive. We all have our scars and our battle wounds and the things that we survived, whether it's abuse or sexual assault or trauma or uh, an eating disorder or the death of a loved one. We all have our scars, but that is not who we are. Yes. Um, and we have to remember that. And so especially when we take that added risk of writing about those things yeah. and writing about our experiences and the things that we've overcome, there's that sort of extra layer of reminder. Like, this is not a personal attack. This person isn't saying that our experiences are invalid or that we didn't write about them well enough. Yeah. It's, you know, whatever the situation is, it may just not be the right fit for where we're sending it or, you know, whatever the case. I think as writers who write about difficult subjects that are very personal, there's that extra layer of protection that we have to give ourselves so that we remember, like, this is not about me. This is about the work itself. 
I, I completely agree. And I think a lot of that is about self-care and it's about having people in your life that you trust enough to be very open with about those sorts of things. And I, I have people that I'm close to and I talk to them very openly about my anxiety about sending a novel out or sending a piece out. Um, you know, I also think it's about finding other things other sources of enjoyment in, in life, things that kind of kind of take you out of that. And for me, it's it's watching films, it's watching TV. Um, I also have a have a dog and I'm really involved in, in being, you know, a pet owner and I get a lot of joy out of that. And that's a form of self-care that really takes me out of kind of um, the writing world in some ways because you know when I get up in the morning the dog doesn't care <laughs> Tova dog doesn't care if I've published in BuzzFeed or Salon or whatever she just cares am I going for my walk this morning awesome good <laughs> um and that's a really you know beautiful contemplative uh loving experience for me beyond the friendships that I have um and it's really helped me to put put things in perspective too when it comes to the writing world um I draw uh I read um you know I think it's important especially for those of us who are writers who have day jobs which I do um or who have other work that we have to do to sustain ourselves um we really need those other outlets um because essentially we're doing sort of like a double shift right you know we go to our jobs and then, you know, we come home and we're doing more work. Um, and so I think it's really important to have robust hobbies, to have things that we do for the pure sake of enjoyment, where there isn't going to be any kind of big reward for doing it. And I think that also kind of better equates us with the idea of like doing things just for pleasure. And, you know, writing should be that. I mean, at times, yeah, it's a job, it's work. But at its core, it's also pleasure. And I think having those moments away from it and finding your joy in other things and then coming back to it is really helpful, too. Mm, I love that. I think that's so important. Yeah. I'm curious. Um, you mentioned hobbies and, and what doing a lot of watching of films and TV. I'm curious what you're devouring these days. I am super into uh game of thrones i have kind of you know a complicated relationship with game of thrones because there's obviously parts of it that are are very um problematic but on the whole i really like the show um i am also into american horror story um i think even when that show is flawed it's interesting as hell um I am into, uh, you know, movies. I'll be really excited when the new Hunger Games movie comes out, although I'll be really, really sad to um, to see that it's the last movie uh, in, the, in the series because those books and those films have really meant a lot to me. Um, I am, you know, I always go back to the movies of Marlon Brando. He's been a big influence on me creatively. Um, and if I'm ever having kind of a slow day, um, I will put in put on one of his movies and enjoy that. Um, I watch, you know, some of the kind of pulpier, soapier shows like Scandal. Um, Quentin Tarantino has a movie coming out this winter, The Hateful Eight, that I'm really excited about. 
Um, and I will always go back to his, his films as well. Um, whenever I need inspiration, um, just because I think he's an incredible writer with a really, really complex and interesting sense of structure. Um, so that's, that's kind of what I'm enjoying right now. Mm, that's awesome. I just really loved talking with you today. And before we go, I want to give you a chance to share some words of wisdom with listeners. <sighs> well, I would say this. I mean, I would say to writers who are starting their career, especially um, women writers, no matter where you are, um, your story is meaningful and your story matters and don't let anybody make you feel that it doesn't and don't feel like you have to get it quote unquote right the first time remember that you know your own creativity is always an evolution and the things that turn out not exactly the way you wanted to sometimes turn out better sometimes they're just learning processes and it is about that process. As exciting as it is to get things published in, in magazines, that's not always a given. And you have to love it and you have to want to do it, even if there's an idea that it may never see the light of day. Hopefully it will. And you have to be smart about the business side of things. So uh, refine and focus your craft. Love your craft because the craft is always going to be there. Um, no matter what happens. But that said, be smart. Read publications, read widely and diversely. Figure out what would be a good home for your work and what kind of pieces work there. Learn to write a really good query letter for any pieces that you send out and revise and refine and revise and refine. And by the way, if you get a rejection with it, like we'd love to see more of your work, send more of your work. Don't be afraid to be assertive uh, about yourself and your work, because if you're not going to do it, nobody else will. Hmm. That's all so important and such great advice. That's what I was told. Yeah, I benefited some from some really good mentors and um, they really imparted good habits and good wisdom to me early on. That's awesome. I think have a mentor, find a mentor, chase after a mentor is also right up there. <laughs> yes, yes. And I've been very, very lucky um, to have really, really good mentors. And, you know, the other thing is, too, is, and is by words of advice, is that if there are writers who you really like, message them, message them on Twitter, mm -hmm. message them on Facebook, because you never know. Like, you never I mean, are, are you always going to get a response? No, but you never know if one of those people is going to really be moved and be interested in mentoring you or giving you advice. So be a good literary citizen. That's mm, important. Absolutely. Laura, it has been so wonderful having you on the show. If listeners want to learn more about you or find links to your work published online, they can find you at laurabogart.wordpress.com. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, too. I, I really appreciate it. You are listening to In Her Room, women writers on life, craft, and changing the world. I'm your host, Sarah Blackthorne. I'm so glad you're a part of the In Her Room community. Without listeners like you, the show would not be possible. 
on our website in-her-room.com, you'll find show notes, learn how to work with me, and have an opportunity to contribute financially to keep In Her Room on the air. Next week on In Her Room, we'll talk with memoirist and journalist Maggie Messett, author of The Rainy Season. I'm Sarah Blackthorne. Let's tell our stories together.